This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock, where you can sign up to receive two coasters with the podcast logo on them if uh, you pledge 10 bucks a month. I know I still owe. I said this last time. I'm going to say it again because it's still true. I still owe some of you coasters, but I, I will go to the post office as soon as it doesn't mean risking certain death. Anyway, thank you to my current patrons. It's uh, it's very good to know that you're out there. It's It's a comfort and a soothing balm in this time of disease. Howdy folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. I am your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is the show where I talk to, as I call them, movers and shakers in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism, and blogging. Because on today's show, I interviewed the man behind one of the longest-running, bestest-ever Russia blogs ever written. If, you, if you've even a, a fleeting interest in Russia's military, you've probably heard of the Russian Defense Policy blog at least once. And on today's episode of The Russia Guy, you can finally hear from the author, who asked to remain anonymous, which is how he's always maintained his blog as well. How do you sustain a blog for more than a decade? Where do you go for information to maintain expertise? On an issue like Russian defense policy, is open source intelligence the future? We discuss this and a lot more in the interview. But that's enough summary. Let's get to the conversation. Why did you start blogging in the first place? What keeps you going after all these years? About 10 years ago, I was leaving the federal service, but I didn't want to give up following the thing that I'd followed for my entire career, which was the Russian military, Soviet military. I often tell people it wasn't just a vocation, it was an avocation as well. Even leaving that, I felt like I still had a lot to learn. I had a lot to share with people. And plus, I had more freedom to to write about what I wanted to write about the way I wanted to write about it. And um, there were lots of issues. I mean, that was at about the time that um, Serdukov began the first real serious reforms of the Russian military. So there was there was so much to follow. Oh, there was always a new issue. There was always a new development to consider. And it hasn't been easy to keep up with it. I used to post a lot more than I do now, but uh, I still consider it a really good day. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of putting something out there because I like to write and I like to try to make sense of all these things that I read. It's kind of a way of getting it out of my own head is to sit down and pull some of it together and, and hopefully people find it useful. So like when you're going through your sources, What's the thought process in terms of what motivates you to write about something? What are some of the things that in your mind you look for in news as like something to explore, something that you'd like others in the field to know about? What are some of the criteria? I have issues that I, I prefer to work on. I, I like working on personnel issues. I like working on leadership issues. I, I don't necessarily care for strategic forces so much. I don't care for the Air Force quite as much because I'm not really that comfortable with it. I like naval issues, ground troops issues, things of this sort. I guess the way I do it is, you know, I, I work off of my own blog role. I, I call it a blog role on the blog, but it's really more just kind of a source list. And I roll through those every day or every couple of days and make sure that I don't miss anything. And between all those things that are in that list, if people look at it, there's a lot of cross-queuing. You'll see something that, um, you know, maybe I didn't see in Krasnaya that will be picked up somewhere else. And I'm like, oh yeah, I got to go back and look at that. So I'll be cued to go back and look at it. And I, I essentially just use my own email account and I email the stuff to myself and 
as the days pile up, I look back and I say, wow, yeah, I really got to do something about this. I got to, I got to write something on this because I have enough stuff to consider and, and pull together that people might find useful. So that's, it's, it's kind of like when it reaches a critical mass, then I feel like I have to write it down. When it comes to like personnel issues, why do you think people should pay attention to this? It seems to me it's like something that's both obviously important, but also extremely convoluted or difficult to make sense of. And so like, I don't know, for, for a layman, like how would you, how would you advise them to, to track or to read about something like a, like personnel changes in the Russian military? Well, I guess I would advise them to try to help me because I'm trying to keep track of it. I've got, um, I've got over a thousand, uh, general officers in my, my database that I've, I followed over time. And I essentially started with the, um, the thrice yearly ukazes from Putin promoting people to general officer or admiral and just started following that. And you'd be surprised how fast that piles up. We're coming up on another one for uh, Defenders Day on the 23rd. And it's always interesting to see who's going to get promoted and kind of get an idea of who's going to be promoted. But it's nice to know, to watch who's connected to whom. I think that's one of the important things. There, there are unpredictable things, but there are also predictable things. If, if you look at, I've put the ages on, on these officers now as well. So essentially you can see who the guys are, the officers are that are coming up. They're going to be due for retirement before too long. And one of, one of whom is, uh, is the chief of the general staff. He's, he's going to be 65 this year. Is this Gerasimov? Or? Yeah, he'll be, he'll be 65. I believe it's in, in the fall. So you were looking who's going to be the next chief of the general staff, because they all have their different uh, different styles and and different points of emphasis, so I think I think that's why it's worth tracking it. And it's also I people need a place to go where they can say who is this person. So I'm kind of like a vacuum cleaner, um, like picking up all this. And it's it's also hard to get rid of these guys too. Sometimes you know it takes some effort to find out who's been retired. You don't necessarily find out right away. You can kind of tell by the age, but uh, so I try to try to clean out the uh, the database too. But. And since you've been tracking this stuff, you said roughly like when Sergei Kov started doing his reforms, what is that? That's like more than a decade now, right? Yeah. You know, generally you could say it was uh, right at the end of 08 after the, uh, the five-day war, the early 09. And have you witnessed, has it just been sort of a gradual shift in personnel or have there been like waves of different kind of like clans or anything like that? Or what's the summary of changes over the last 12 years when tracking personnel? I think if I had that kind of grand conclusion, I probably would have written about it already. <laughs> I think the most I could do is if people will leaf back, they'll see that um, that I've kind of identified some candidates to take over for Grasimov. Guys who have uh, the fast burners, they're relatively young. They've, uh, they've checked all the boxes, including command in Syria. That might be about as much as, as I can do, except that the odd thing is, in the last 12 years, a new thing is Putin started appointing people to jobs that, uh, that you wouldn't expect, like the um, commander-in-chief of the Air Force now, Aerospace Forces, is a ground troops officer. And that's the kind of thing that just, it just never would have happened in the past. It never would have happened 10 years ago. It never would have happened tw certainly 20 years ago or 30. So it's, um, it's interesting. And, you know, it may be that, um, they're looking at people that, uh, that the Supreme commander in chief is comfortable with more than somebody who, you know, necessarily ever threw a, flew a flyer, fighter plane or a bomber or anything like that. 
So that that would be the one thing that I think is is one of the the surprising things that's happened in the last decade. Meaning that the decisions have possibly become more politicized. I don't know if I'd even call it politicized. I'd call it more personalized. The two are indecipherable in Russia often. <laughs> true, true. But I don't want people to think it's you know politicized in the sense of a Republican appointment or a Democrat appointment or something like that. It's more um, you know it's it's manual control of the uh, cadres in the MOD. Let's say right, right. What's like one thing that you wish the public understood better about the Russian military? Do I have to pick one? Can I pick two? You can pick two. Let's go with two. As I think about this, I think the number one thing that I think everybody should try to bear in mind, and I I forget myself sometimes, I think the the saying and the thought is attributed to Churchill, and that's Russia's never as weak or as strong as we think it is. So if right now Russian military power has been waxing for Certainly the last five or six years, people will debate, and that may or may not continue, but it's almost like, as I think about it, it's almost like kind of in nature, some kind of an animal that can puff itself up to warn off predators. There's a lot of that puffery that's that's going on, too, so you, you kind of have to dig through and see where's the weakness, where's the strength, the true weakness, the true strengths, things like that. But this waxing of military power... I think a lot of it, of course, is going to depend on economic performance. Um, there are other people who say it's going to continue irregardless. I guess we'll have to see. That That's my number one thing. Never as weak or never as strong as, as everyone thinks. And my second thing would be, and, and this is really probably more for for a layman, a real novice to, to Russia, is Russian military power and American military power are very asymmetrical. We're really not like each other that much in most regards, except maybe strategic forces. And what I mean by this is Russia is the, the ultimate continental superpower. And the U.S. is the ultimate expeditionary power. You know, the U.S., we plan to fight all of our wars on somebody else's turf, not on our own. And the Russians are, you know, their great strength is, is a defensive mindset. And everything everything's around the periphery. We're very, very asymmetrical. And I think probably as I as I look back and I think back on things that have been said, probably one of the big mistakes was ever to call Russia just a regional power, because I don't think that was ever true. Even when we felt like they were really weak, you know, we, we would always say, oh, yeah, well, they have, you know, they have strategic forces, yes, but there's basically a regional power. They're, now, they're, they're a continental power, kind of two continents even, you could say, European and Asian. So those are the things that I think people need to bear in mind, if they could bear two things in mind. In terms of other places to turn, in addition to your blog, like who are some of the best public commentators on Russian defense matters that, that come to your mind? Listeners that are going to check out your blog or they already know your blog, where, where, where else would you recommend they turn for good analysis? Frankly, there, there, aren't a lot of, there aren't a whole lot of people who are focusing pretty much strictly on the mil- Russian military. They'll do a lot of other things, too. They'll do Russian foreign policy. They'll do domestic politics, too, and things like that. But if I had to if I had to pick some people that I think have done really good work in English. If there's somebody that, that you know, screams at you who, who maybe writes in Russian, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the listeners of this podcast, you know, also speak Russian. The people that principally Western analysts writing in English, the people I would say would be um, Keir Giles from Chatham House. He's very, very productive. Center for Naval Analysis, Michael Kaufman. He does. I know he doesn't always agree with the things I write, and that's normal. But he's a, a, a fresh mind to a lot of this, doing a lot of interesting work. Lastly, another person that 
has not always agreed with things I've written, but Roger McDermott that writes a lot for Jamestown Foundation, which I like to think, I think of that as a, uh, as a real gem. I'm, there's a lot of information there, and I don't think a lot of people use that, that resource. There are a lot of good people writing for Jamestown, and, and he's one of them. He writes elsewhere, I think, too, but um, he writes on the real, these are people who really write on a lot of the nitty-gritty real military issues and, and don't usually spin off into other things. Another person, I'm not sure where he is right now, used to be at the Army War College, Steve Blank is another good good guy. So those those would be people. And kind of Russian and English, I would say the people at, um, at the Center for the Analysis of Strategies and Technologies, Ruslan Pukov's group, I think they're amazing. I think, um, you know, working in the confines of, of the Russian system, they've, they managed to carve out a lot of freedom to, um, to analyze and to comment as they, as they see things. So, and it's not just Pukov. He's, he's got several people there that are very sharp and do great work. It's very useful. And a lot of it's in English too. You mentioned that some of these people that you just named don't always agree with you. I was, I wanted to know, you know, you're, you've been blogging for so long now, if you could describe a bit of your experience, your relationship with your your readers and the feedback you get, because this is one of the things I often ask guests about. I, when I, whenever I have journalists on, I'll often want to know kind of their relationship with Twitter and social media, because it used to be that a lot of most websites that had that contained journalism would have a comment section. That's a lot less common now, I think. Certainly in the Russian media, they've almost all done away with it because there's legal liability should your commenters write anything offensive or extremist. And so it's not, you don't see it as often now, but in the, in the blogosphere, interaction with readers, I think is, is a lot livelier than it often is in journalism. And so can you say a bit about just over the years, like kind of what relationship you've constructed with your readership? I would say it's, it's kind of the good and the bad. Maybe I'll start with the bad first. Uh, The bad is both in quantity and quality, it hasn't been what I would have hoped for. It just, it just really isn't there. And, um, I tend to get more from the trolls that have to be ignored. Obviously I attract a lot of people like that, that just have to be tuned out. I attract a lot of people too, that want to talk about the U S and I, I just have simply started to turn those completely away. Um, if they want to write a blog about U S defense policy or U S politics, go and do that. But you know, I'm not, I'm not doing any kind of net assessment of, of Russia and the U S I'm writing about the Russian military stuff. I'm writing about things that, people can't really access other ways. That's, that's my, the thing that I'm trying to do. Do you mean that you get like, you get like what aboutism kind of in the comments? Oh yeah. It's always, it's all, it's constantly what aboutism. And I also get people who simply just don't read. Yeah. You know, I've written something and they, they've heard it a way that it wasn't intended. And it, maybe I'm a bad writer. I don't know. It, maybe it's me. Um, but, and then, then there are the people too that are looking for free research. I love that. But now, to turn to the good, there's the good stuff. It's also brought paying jobs, too, which has been nice. And I've also been able to see who's who's really interested in Russia and where they're from. Not just who they are, but a lot of them where they're from, if I don't know who they are. I absolutely, I loved them before, but I love them even more now. I love the Finns, the Swedes, the Poles. They are intensely interested, it seems, in Russia. They're some of my biggest readers. And some of it may be because especially Finland, Sweden, the English literacy is so high that they can read my blog just like, you know, they read their own newspapers. They are great readers, and I've made actually made some, some especially a lot of acquaintances in Finland who, uh, as a frontline state, is intensely uh, 
interested. But I'll tell you what, the biggest the biggest and best feedback that I ever get, though, is when people cite my blog in their references for something else. I mean, to me, that means a lot that they feel like it's credible and worthy of, um, you know, directing people there for more information. Even even if it's anonymous, I mean, that's that's a real leap of faith for people to uh, to reference something that's anonymous. Well, the work stands on its own, I think. But yeah, I I, I also wanted to ask you because one of the probably the most popular resources when it comes to information about the Russian military in the recent years has been uh, probably Bellingcat, I would think, is, is up there anyway. I mean, they focus on these kind of high-profile issues that often involve spies or the military cover-ups and things like that. I wanted to know if I could ask you just sort of generally, could you compare, in your opinion, the value of, say, like secret intelligence, you know, U.S. secret intelligence on Russia versus open source intelligence when it comes to, you know, US US knowledge about Russia like how do you feel with with the kind of where where we are, you know, with the internet today and the kind of accessibility of information, how do those two stack up in terms of kind of intelligence value? 10 years ago, and and that's what I can speak to, I think we were already moving away from uh, you know, it has to be secret, it has to be code word. We were moving away from that and and policymakers were actually starting to see the value of work that could be produced basically with open sources alone or, or primarily on open sources. But let me backtrack just a little bit to say we say intelligence, but when I talk about intelligence here, I'm talking about strategic intelligence, intelligence about Russia's capabilities and intentions writ large. Anything I say bad about intelligence, it doesn't apply to those other levels of intelligence, operational and tactical, where Signals intelligence, imagery intelligence are absolutely essential for war fighting. So I'm not going to denigrate them. I will denigrate strategic intelligence a little bit in, in, in this way. Wait, can, can, you, can you just explain, so for the, again, for the layman, among which I include myself, we're, we're compa- you're saying strategic intelligence is like, or the, the, sorry, the, uh, the good intelligence is satellite images and, and what, what, like, what are we talking about in practical terms here? <laughs> Well, we're talking about we're talking about the the lower level, the operational level, the tactical level intelligence that actually guys in uniform rely on to keep them alive. Electronic intelligence, um, imagery intelligence, uh, things like that are, are absolutely essential. So, and, and that's that's a whole different world that it's it's even handled differently in budgeting than strategic. By strategic intelligence, I'm talking about things that end up in the national intelligence daily that, you know, Mr. Trump is supposed to be reading. There's a lot of intelligence money that is invested, a lot of risks taken, and in my opinion, relatively few benefits that come from things like human intelligence that's used to go into these strategic level assessments. Uh, that, that kind of work is uh, to, get, to get human reporting, to get human sources in places where they can report it's 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 very hard. Um, the, we're talking about hard target still in Russia. Maybe not as hard as North Korea, but still hard. Don't get me wrong, though. A, a human report, a, a communications intercept, very high level or very significant, targeted on an issue that we're interested in, can be a game changer. It's absolutely can be a game changer. But if I put it this way, if I had to lose one thing or the other, if I had to lose America's strategic agent intelligence as the Russians would call it, strategic agent intelligence, or lose open sources, I would gladly do away with the agents. I think the open sources are 
or irreplaceable. Again, in a place where it still works, like Russia, maybe not North Korea, but you know, maybe it works in China, maybe it works in Iran, I'm not sure. But speaking just for Russia, I would say if I had to pick, only, you can only have one thing in your tool belt, that would be the thing I would have. And is that because, just specifically because of the internet, or is it because Russia's political regime has opened up, you know, relative to decades ago? Well, because, you know, and because it's, even though it's closed up some in the last 10 or 15 years, it's still open enough that there's a lot of good information to be had if one's willing to work at it. It's not like it was. It's not a cornucopia like it was. It's, um, when, when I think about the, the, inf- the sources I use now compared with the sources that we used to use, it's, um, the quality is not the same. I've had to rely a lot more on official sources, but um, there's still good unofficial stuff that is published that, that's useful that you can blend together with the official sources. You said that uh, Ramil Shamsudinov's r- sort of shooting rampage at a military base in Russia last October. You said that was the military story of the year last year, and you know there were lots of there are lots of lots of stories to choose from. And I was wondering why did you pick that one in particular? Well, I, I think I picked that one because there used to be a tradition of having the top military stories of the year. I think Nizavi um, Samaya used to have a top military stories of the year. And Vayano Pramushlani Courier used to have one where they would have the, they pick their 20 top military stories of the year. I think even Ria Novosti had it. And they would be, it'd be a mix of, of positive things and it would also include negative things. But now if you look at it, they're all positives. They've thrown away the negatives, even though the negatives are still there. So that's why I, I focused on the situation of uh, Shamsuddinov. Those top stories just aren't what they used to be, but um, it's, you know, it's, it, it shows too. I mean, this, this kind of case, this is where you get that uh, what aboutism because people will say, well, this stuff happens in the U S all the time. Yes, it does. It's, you know, it's the first time we've heard about one like this in Russia rampage on a military base. But what it shows is that despite effort to efforts to um, do away with Yedovshtian, it still exists. And it's apparently it's still pretty bad. They, the MOD tried to say at first that it was just a case of a single deranged guy, you know, acting on his own personal motives, but they backed away from that pretty quickly and actually sent a fairly large contingent down into uh, the Eastern military district, down into Transbaikal to investigate up to 40 units for allegations. Transbaikal has traditionally been a real backwater, very remote, a lot of unhappy people. Um, they send officers who aren't the best down there and, this, this is maybe what you get. So we'll see. Um, you know, they're investigating and they're investigating this unit and other units. We'll see what they turn up and what they what they deign to tell us. But um, I think it's a positive that uh, that they didn't just uh, sweep this one under the rug. Lots of lots of abuse cases like this are just simply abuse and murder. Or just, you know, you never hear any any details about how it was investigated or how it was what the disposition was. Do you have any sense in terms of credit? do for for kind of taking this as seriously as the as they appear to be is that putin is that shaygu is that like is or is it kind of impossible to say exactly who's responsible for that policy well i'd have to say it's 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 got to be in a moscow level thing because uh, the eastern military district obviously it uh, none of it's going to be good for them it's all bad their only hope is to uh, if there are problems to and this may be a Western mindset, their only hope would be to get to the bottom of it and try to sort things out and improve the situation. 
but uh, there's there's very little good that uh, comes out of it for a commander uh, in the Eastern Military District. So I that's why I think it probably had to be a decision in Moscow. You've written regarding U.S. sanctions designed to prevent some strategic exports to Russia. You've said that Moscow can basically kind of get what it wants internationally, but it's unknown if Russia can do what it wants with that technology, you know, if they can do it successfully. And you've compared that to the USSR getting equipment and knowledge, you know, either stealing it or, or buying it somewhere. And you said that they, that the Soviet Union also failed to kind of do with it what they hoped to do with it. And so can you explain what this, what this means? Because, I mean, does this mean that the, the Russian military suffers from some similar failing that the Soviet military had, or is it something different at play here? Or what, what exactly is preventing Moscow from sort of exploiting the, the, these, these defense technologies, these, these strategic technologies that are, the U.S. is trying to keep out of their hands? You know, it's, to me, it's just ironic that, um, that now they're able to license production of things that they had to steal in the past. And yet you have the other irony that they still face the same kinds of problems. And these problems are, they're, um, they're wider than the military. They're, they're national level problems. They're political, economic problems, social and educational problems, um, problems with the labor force and, and having people that can take this technology. And then, cause none of these technologies, the, the example I wrote about was the, the uh, five axis milling machines from Japan, you know, they, uh, they basically, it's basically a, you know, a very fancy computer controlled uh, machine tool that can make parts for all sorts of things that so in the case, um, in the old Toshiba case back in the cold war, they were, they were milling um, sophisticated submarine propellers that, that made submarines much quieter. But, um, and, and they, they were able to do, in that case, they were able to do that, but there's lots of other stuff that's connected to, that one piece of machinery, like the, the Akulas may have been very quiet because they had a sophisticated propeller, but they were also noisy because of other things on the boat that made noise and those problems weren't taken care of. So there's always something else. It's not a, uh, it's not a systemic thing. It's kind of a, you know, hit or miss type effort. And it really, it depends on the people and it depends on the, the defense industry and defense industry working in, in as, in a large sum working together on, um, production issues. So it's just, um, I mean, the examples, I mean, we can see the defense industry struggles. I'm not saying they're doing horribly because obviously their production is up and, but there are areas where they're, they're hurting the, um, the advanced fighter pack FA is apparently only going to be a limited buy. And uh, that's somewhat disappointing for them because that's basically kind of a, an F-22 level technology. And F-22 has been in service since, I think, 98 in the U.S. The new tank, T-14, the, on the Armada chassis, still not in production. They unveiled that. It's, it'll be, I guess, on victory day, it'll be six years. And, you know, some of this is trying to decide if they want to invest a in a big buy of this. It's one thing to develop it, another thing to pay for a big, um, big buy. And shipbuilding is another area where they continue to struggle. Although I think things are getting a little bit better for shipbuilding. It's still, uh, they're not rolling these ships off like sausages. I mean, I look at China, what China's producing, and it's just, the Russians don't write about it very much. A few do, but not many. What the Chinese Navy is getting has got to scare the Russians, but they just don't want to let on because, uh, you know, it's, remember, it's a, kind of that image of the uh, 
that the animal in the wild puffing himself up to kind of scare off a potential predator. So you can't, uh, they don't want to show that weakness. So th- those are kind of the kinds of areas where I think even, even with the technology that they can get, it's still not getting it done because it's, it's much bigger than just those technologies. Uh, they obviously help, but they aren't sufficient. Necessary, but not sufficient. That's my interview with the author of the Russian Defense Policy blog, one of the longest-running, best-quality Russia blogs around, if you ask me. In the description of this podcast episode, you can find hyperlinks to the blog itself and the project's account on Twitter. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider visiting patreon.com slash kevinrothrock, where you can make a contribution. And if you pledge... 10 bucks a month to become what I'm calling the audiophile supporter tier. I made this name up. Audiophile. It sounds nice, right? Well, it gets you two custom coasters featuring the podcast artwork by Yulia Drobova. And you've got to supply a mailing address if you want me to actually send these things to you because I cannot get them to you without a mailing address. And I have a bit of a backlog, not because there's so many, but mainly because I... First, I was a bit sick, then I was a bit lazy, and now I'm a bit terrified to go into public because, as I'm recording this, the entire world is shutting down because there's a disease spreading that's killing a lot of people, getting even more people sick. You know the drill. You know the story. You, there's just no way that you, you, you haven't heard it unless you've been living under a rock, in which case, how are you getting this podcast? Thank you for pitching in, everybody who's already doing that. I'm happy to get feedback on Twitter if ever you have a comment or a question about the show. On the next episode of The Russia Guy, you'll be getting an interview with Jill Dougherty, a longtime CNN correspondent and Russia journalist and analyst and expert. So look forward to that. It'll be out in the next few days, assuming that I don't get stricken with the deadly disease. Anyway, thanks for listening. Until next time. Дайте, что ли, карты в руки погадать на короля. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля.